find yourself thinking that you're not good enough or that you're not lovable? Many people hide a dark side that they feel that if others knew their secrets, it would be detrimental to their relationships. It doesn't need to be that way at all. This is where words can't reach. Shedding light on our dark side with your host, Dr. Madeline DeLittle can help. It's time for a frank and open discussion about the things that are bothering us and say what needs to be said. Dr. DeLittle and her guest experts are here to help you understand and provide advice. Now, here is Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Hello and welcome to Voice America Empowerment Channel. My name is Dr. Madeline DeLittle and you're listening to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on a Dark Side. And today's topic uh, is specifically about breaking this pattern of uh, shame. And to talk about this topic is an expert in transforming shame and Pat DeYoungen, who's been on our show before. And so welcome back, Pat. Thank you. It's great to have you back on the show. Good to be back. Lovely. I want to remind the listeners a little bit about you um, in case they didn't hear you the first time. But of course, they can always catch up on your last show on the website or on iTunes. You are a registered psychotherapist and a registered social worker, and you've been in full-time therapy, uh, working with adults mostly and, and couples in private practice since 1996. And you particularly work within the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community. And um, you, you'd say that your hallmark of your work is understanding your clients with genuine presence and empathy. And that certainly comes across uh, to me when I was listening to your, your show last time. So you've written two books, Pat, one on relational psychotherapy, a primer. That was, you uh, wrote that in 2003. Oh, it's a current edition, 2015. You've up, up, uh, dated it. Mm-hmm. And you've got another one called Understanding and Treating Chronic Shame, which I, that's how I got to know you by, by finding this book and because it was, um, it just touched me in so many different ways. It was, it's a wonderful book to read. And they're all for sale on your website, which is www.patdeyoung.com. So last time, Pat, let's just take off from where we were. Last time we spoke about, uh, I asked you for advice to the listeners um, who recognize that chronic shame maybe is an issue for them. And you said, go to the relationships that you feel safest with. Be more open with those people. Share more of who you are and allow more of yourself to show a little can you can you just slide in from there? Can you pick it up from there? <laughs> right, happy to. Lovely. I thought about I thought about how we ended, and I was imagining listeners saying to me, to you, but it's not that easy. I do try actually, and if it were that easy, as easy as having courage, mm-hmm. I would be over it by now. And I actually agree with them um, because I know that chronic shame is very hard to shake. And that's because it gets so deeply embedded from so young in who we are, um, in our nervous systems, in how we know how to keep ourselves safe in the world, through everything we know implicitly about who we are and what's possible for us in our relationships with other people. And it's because it's so woven in there that I've been thinking about it for so long, as it turns up in my clients, and thinking about, oh, it works differently for different people, and trying to kind of pull that apart and get a sense of the the different ways that shame 
works inside of different people and appears in different folks. Um, yeah, so I'd like to talk about that some. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to know what it, how it's manifest in different different people because I work specifically with children, and so I mm-hmm. I'm really intrigued to know how it comes, how it's what it looks like for adults. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. When I talk about this, I'm often talking to therapists, and so I'm talking uh, to help them recognize what they see in people, kind of from the outside in, Um, and I talk about, generally, the three faces of shame. That's one of my sort of speaks, Mm. and and, uh, I was thinking about, I know that that this radio show is reaching out not necessarily to therapists, though they certainly can listen, but to just people who are interested in the topic. So I thought, I'd like to be able to talk about those three faces of shame kind of from the inside out for our listeners today. Mm, okay. Does that make sense? Yes, please yep. do. Okay. So, shall I just go ahead with that? Why don't you? Yes, tell us about right. these three faces. Okay. So, as any sort of teacher person does, I There are three D's that are important. So there's the emotionally dysregulated face of shame. Um, There's the deficit face of shame, people who feel in deficit a lot as persons. What does does that mean? Let me me just get to them one at a time. Okay. 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 I'll get to the deficit one after we talk about the the dysregulated one. Okay. And then the third one is the dissociated face of shame. And by that one, I mean that these folks are dissociated, split off, kind of oblivious to their own shame and vulnerability. So those are the three that I talk about. And I would suggest that we kind of look at them one at a time because they kind of build on each other developmentally or are related to each other. Okay. So if we go to the dysregulated one first, if that's okay? Yes, yes. Okay. So... Um, the dysregulated face of shame, what that feels like kind of from the inside out to an adult human being is just a sense, um, whether it's all the time or just some of the time, that my emotions overwhelm me and, and my emotions make my relationships really hard. It's really messy between me and other people. It's a, a sense of sort of a chronic right brain emergency state. Um, and what, where this, where this feeling comes from is a lack of the experience of having another person in one's life in like when you were a little person to, you come with a lot of really messy emotions as little people do, as infants do, as toddlers and children do. And there's a person on the other side of that who is able to say, I see you, I hear you, we can calm you down. As you get a little older, we can find names for that for those emotions. We can help you manage them. Rather, for for people who are who live as adults with that kind with, with a sort of severe kind of emotional dysregulation going on, what happened for them instead of that was they got met by an adult who was themselves dysregulated, who was not able to give them that kind of containment and regulation and understanding and calming and soothing and all that good stuff. And and not just wasn't able to, but kind of 
hit them with the opposite, with their own upset. Um, And that can come in the form of really overt abuse, or it can come in the form of um, a kind of just the, the adult person being dysregulated, like very depressed or very anxious or something, so that the child feels like getting in close, coming close to another, to, the, to that person's emotions with their own emotions is dangerous. And that's where that, that sense of my emotions are dangerous and being close to another person emotionally is dangerous. I am going to get hurt by my emotions and by the person that I share them with. That's where, that's the, the kind of origin of that. Um, and you might wonder, okay, but we're talking about shame, right? Like, mm-hmm. so where does where does shame then come in? Where, exactly. Um, so you might remember from the first uh, radio show that we did together that my definition of shame is one's felt sense of self disintegrating or falling apart in relation to a dysregulating other. That that's the core experience that's underneath. Um, the ongoing experience of chronic shame. So that's exactly what we're describing here in a really full-blown kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that sense of messiness around, one, around one's own emotions, right? Your emotional self is kind of your core self. Like, this is who you are, even as a little kid, right? What you feel, what you want, what you desire, what your frustrations are, that's really, really you. And if that can't be met, and if that's experienced as messy and dangerous, I think that translates really easily into a sense of kind of disgust with oneself. It's oh, interesting boy. that it's interesting that often, um, I think Alan Shore writes about this, um, I know he does, there are studies that, that um, sort of show a strong correlation between people who have survived abuse, um, especially relational um, trauma, mm-hmm. and a, a, a deep felt sense of disgust. And it's kind of a little bit of a non sequitur, a mystery, why that should be there, um, especially if there wasn't a sort of, I am going to make you feel disgusting in the early relationship. But I think that the the combination of my inner self is just a mess here and there's no place for it to land. And then, you know, in families of origin where there's not much easy attunement and ease with emotions, there's also quite a lot of shame and blame. That's another kind of family system mm. in which, right, mm. in which, so... A little kid can also connect up, if you're in that kind of a family, this messy, icky feeling inside with, you know, angry eyes and angry faces and people blaming things for people, people blaming other people for things. And, you know, someone's always wrong. And I think there's a link up that often happens there, too, so that so that there's a lot of shame just sitting inside of or alongside of that experience of dysregulation. So it's not like the child is necessarily, it's not directed at them. It's just what's going on all around them that they're that's, hearing, they're seeing. That's right. That, mm. that, that there is good and bad, right? 
you can be right and you can be wrong. You can be like looked at in a really a way that makes you feel bad. And that that environment of, of where someone can just be wrong connects up to that sort of something is wrong with me because I can't get what I need and my feelings are messy and it, it just congeals. Mm-hmm. Not in a logical way, but that's not where shame comes from anyway. It's not logical, right? It's visceral. It's emotional, relational stuff. And I'm thinking of my own family of four kids, if I may, for a minute, where there was sort of there was three kids against one constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was promoted by the par- my parents. Mm-hmm. So there was sort of ganged up constantly. This was the, the black sheep, mm-hmm. ridiculed, laughed at, sort of, um, yeah, sort of uh, dismissed. What he had to say was dismissed. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think that uh, that would land a shame on him well, now. As, sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that wasn't intentionally harmful it wasn't meant to certainly for me it wasn't meant to be mean I was just following a pattern a sort of a normal pattern within a family Mm. system that was modeled by parents and I just followed suit and Mm -hmm. yikes yeah happens in school rooms right it's the it's the aftermath of bullying as well right yeah it happens it happens in social situations where certain people for whatever reasons of uh, gender or sexuality or racialization or whatever are made to be other, right? Are othered, are misrecognized, and and that sort of the the way that looks and and attitudes blend with a sense of just not being seen and known on the inside for who you are <sighs> melds together as shame, or it can. So when you talk about dangerous, I think of, of um, my work is all about creating safety for children and safety in their play, mm-hmm. um, following from Porges' work, Stephen Porges' work, Yes, um, which is a bit complicated for the listeners, but it basically is talking about therapy is all about creating safety, safety, safety. Right. And, and the children I work with, they it's not intentional from the parents, but it, there's an unpredictability about whether they're going to be uh, loving and kind or dismissive or um, it being the child is being ignored it's mm-hmm. a sort of um it's a it's you know you wouldn't call it abuse you wouldn't find mm-hmm. the child you know uh, child services but right. it's a sort of benign neglect of uh, or on and off neglect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that does create a dangerous situation for a child and I would think that some of those children might be it's a you know these things are all a continuum but could be on that continuum of um, a, an ongoing struggle with dysregulated emotion and what you then as a safe person in a safe place are giving them is as a therapist you mean as a therapist that's right yeah. is is that other regulation that is dependable where you can you can find out oh, my emotions are okay because this person can meet them and handle them and mm-hmm. will be there with them, right? So that's dysregulated. Do you want to go on to um, the deficit one, Pat, or is that more on dysregulated? Well, I was thinking that, you know, if, if a listener's identifying with this in some way, they might want to say, well, is there anything that can be done here besides, right, taking myself right. out of it, right? right. 
<laughs> and taking yourself off to therapy is often a good choice when you struggle with a lot of shame because it is such a relational affliction that Whoa, the, the, what did you call this? A, a, a relational, relational affliction. Affliction, yes. Ooh, that, 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 that it needs a it needs a relational cure, right? If if that sort of mutual regulation of affect, that right brain to right brain connection and having that work well is what is going to heal shame. You can get that changed. You can learn how to do that better in your life with sort of real people, not necessarily therapists, but you can certainly get jump started with therapists who understand that this is a problem for you and want to help you with it. So anyway, if this dysregulation of affect is a really big deal for you and you might one of the ways you might notice that it is a big deal for you are the ways in which you try to kind of regulate your affect from the outside in addictions do that for example right they help to numb they help to manage emotions that you can't just manage from the inside um addictive behavior sometimes self-harm is a way um sometimes just sort of spacing out dissociating is a way but um, if you wanted to help yourself with this, um, you might read some, say, Stephen Porges, or you might read Deb Dana, who's written a nice little book that's more sort of per person on the street about Stephen Porges's approach to being safe with other human beings is the core of our well-being mentally and psychologically, right? Can you speak, um, spell that for the listeners, Pat? Dana? Oh, Deb. Yeah, D-A-N-A, and it's Deb. Right. D-E-B. I, I would definitely recommend that one. It's yep. a little easier to read. Yes, I wouldn't recommend Porges <laughs> unless, Love unless you're really, do. really curious about how this works. <laughs> Down. But yeah, so, so the point is to begin to realize that your emotional reactions, the intensity, the overreactions that you have, they actually do make sense. That... You can befriend your emotions. You can learn to get them inside a window of tolerance. You can learn how to name them. You can learn how to negotiate emotions with other people. And if that's hard for you, you can begin to think about that um, by reading. You can also, whether you're reading or in some therapy, you can also share that this is your struggle with some close friends or with your partner. And, you know, other people can help you with this. So it's not like the end of the world. So it's a tough thing to to be kind of labored with in your adult life. Yes, and it's, um, for so many, it's not even understood. And and not all therapists understand it either, to be fair. Would you that say? Yes. Uh-huh. People who struggle with this can of, often get a, a diagnosis from the mental health system that's quite punitive. They're often called, say, borderline, Right. And that means that you are very hard to work with. And of course, if someone doesn't understand how your emotional system works, they're just going to interact with you emotionally and have a bad experience and you are going to too. So yeah, you, you do need therapists who understand how, how much help you need with understanding your own emotions in order to be even in a relationship with a therapist. That's a really important point that you've just talked about, is that connection between, if if I can just uh, go down this rabbit hole for a minute, yep. ar- around, 
the the inner world being being labeled as borderline or maybe um, attention deficit disordered or I'm not sure what what the what they are but often this can be misdiagnosed or misunderstood and then well you know diagnosis from the mental health system from the DSM it is from the outside in it's about a list of symptoms right mm. like you act like this and like this and like this, so that means check, 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 you have this diagnosis. It doesn't really much pay attention to what's going on inside of you and like where did this come from and how does it feel on a daily basis. There are two different kind of perspectives on human beings, the diagnostic one and the understanding from the inside out one, which I, which I like to encourage in the therapist that I teach and talk to understanding from the inside out right and and and, and so do I and it, it just it just seems it's pervasive it's the diagnosis it's the label yeah and, and um, not sort of gone into the inner world of what's really going on yeah all right sorry I just I just wanted to make that clear for the listeners that sometimes yes. we can be diagnosed with things that really aren't as really it's deep it's really about shame Yes, that, mm-hmm, that it's about our inner experience and that the diagnosis it can even fit. But then what, right? Yeah, pills. Yes, so that, but they have a place. Feel, so that you don't yeah. feel some of this stuff. And if, if your feelings, your emotions, your, your mental state is really destructive or really, really painful, who would deny you some medication? I wouldn't, right? Some medication to help you feel better in the moment to, to address the symptom. But the symptom is still a symptom of something that's going wrong inside. Mm. And often what's going wrong inside is everything to do with external and internalized relationships with other people yes um that would be another discussion around the place of medication because i think there is a place for some folks i don't want to dismiss it completely absolutely yeah i agree it's life giving for some yes all right so where were we (laughs) we were wrapping up the dysregulated face of shame in order okay. to move on to the deficit face of shame. And I think just to backtrack a little bit, what I like to say when I'm teaching about this is that each of these faces of shame that you come to recognize as a therapist is actually a kind of a mask, like it's a protection against actually feeling the, the interpersonal pain of the shame event or the shame, the fear of that happening again. So, and I especially need and want to say that around the deficit face of shame because um, it kind of appears in two ways. One is pretty straightforward. Um, Someone feels, you know, I'm kind of an inadequate person. I don't feel good in myself. I feel awkward. I feel less than. I feel incompetent. And that feeling is kind, they live inside that feeling. And you might think that that feeling is a shame feeling, but actually it's a way to kind of downregulate from the acuteness of feeling shame. There's, an also, there's also another way to live out the deficit place of shame, and that is to compensate, to overcompensate, to achieve a whole lot, to, to try to 
kind of constantly prove to the world and to yourself that you're not as inadequate or incompetent or awkward or ugly or whatever it is that you fear you are. But the, the, the fear of that inadequacy is, is still under there and you still kind of know about it. Um, Do you know about it? Do you actually, are you consciously aware of what's going on? In, in, in my, the way that I make these categories, in this category, there's enough of a disease, right? Enough of, uh, you know that you're a perfectionist or that you procrastinate because you're afraid that it won't be perfect, right? Ah, yeah. Yeah, you 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 kind of know that that's the problem, or you know that mm. you're such an achiever and you get awards and accolades and stuff, but it doesn't really satisfy something, and you kind of know that you're doing it because you're hungry for something that you just never get to. Mm. You you feel the emptiness underneath, right? Yeah, that's that's a that seems to touch a, a nerve here yeah so we've got just a, a minute or so to go to break um so can you give me more uh, can you give an example of somebody with a deficit of shame and um um is it different how, how is it different from dysregulated like is it the okay. origins the same okay so that's that it is different in that i think that uh, for a dysregulated, I mean, for a deficit folks, um, they did have a parent who could help them regulate their own emotions. The parent didn't necessarily see, probably didn't see the child very well, but the parent could self-regulate. They didn't present as a dysregulated, dangerous person. But they also did not co-regulate with that child very well. The child was in the position of needing to kind of adapt to whatever the parent's emotional need was around regulation. Mm. And it kind of, in in the way I think about it, these folks who sort of uh, feel their their deficit all the time, they learn to down-regulate, probably from a down-regulating parent. Um, and the folks who have to, like, rise above it while knowing about it, they probably learn to upregulate from a parent who needed their kind of upregulation to keep the parent mm, sort of happy in their parenting, right? So you're going to have to explain to the listeners in 30 seconds or less what upregulation or dysregulation. Actually, what we'll do is we'll wait, we'll get back to that after the break because that's an important piece is what, what is this upregulation and downregulation, okay? okay? Would that be sure. all right to come back to that? Yes, so, we'll come back um, to that. So we're going to go to break now, and uh, you've been listening to Pat DeYoung, and she's talking about breaking the patterns of shame. And when we come back, we're going to look more about, look at uh, the three faces of shame, and in particular, we're going to look at uh, what dissociated uh, shame looks like. We'll be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want to know more about how to work with children and adults to transform shame, depression, loss, and anxiety, order Dr. DeLittle's book, Where Words Can't Reach, Neuroscience and the Satire Model in the Sand Tray. The book is available online from Dr. DeLittle's website, wherewordscannotreach.com. 
Dr. DeLittle also conducts workshops and can come to your workplace or organization. If you wish to have Dr. DeLittle come and do a two-day workshop on an introduction to neuroscience and satire in the sand tray, please contact her at mdelittle at gmail.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Where Words Can't Reach, shedding light on our dark side. We'd love to hear from you with any stories, suggestions, or questions by sending an email to mthelittle at gmail.com. Here again is Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Well, welcome back to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on Our Dark Side. My guest today is Pat DeYoung, and we're talking about breaking the pattern of shame, and we're looking at the three faces of shame. And we left off before the break, Just we just want to touch on these terms, upregulation and downregulation. So, Pat, mm-hmm. take it away. Okay. I've been thinking over the break that maybe the best way to go at it is to talk about um, kind of models of attachment different ways that little kids, infants, and small children learn to attach to their parents. And the down regulation is related to sort of an avoidant pattern of attachment. So you have a parent who is kind of withdrawn, kind of rejecting, not not meaning to be, but the, the child comes forward with affect, with feeling, with emotion, with needing something, and the parent just doesn't have it in them to come forward very well. And because of their own pattern of down-regulating, blunting their own emotion and, and their affective sort of connectors. And so the child, in response to that, thinks, okay, if I, need to, if I want to be connected to this parent, they don't think this consciously, but this is the effect, right? I need to yeah. down-regulate. I can't have big emotions. They're not well-received. I need to be like that. So that's one pattern, the sort of down-regulated, blunted emotion pattern. And then there's the ambivalent attachment style, which is more about a parent who is, as you were talking about some of the parents of your little kids, sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. They're in, they're out. And the kid's anxiety is, how do I get that parent to connect with me? How do I... And so they upregulate, they ramp up their emotions to a certain extent to try to draw the parent in, to keep the connection going. Uh-huh. And, and there's performance in that. Sometimes there's acting out in that. But that's how they learn to manage their emotions in relation to other people. And those patterns can carry then through a lifetime, right? Someone okay. down-regulates their affect in order to get along in the world. And that uh-huh. sort of pairs with, um, or it's a, it, it looks... It fits with, that's what I'm trying to say, a, um, a deficit face of shame that's kind of quiet and subdued. Mm-hmm. And then the upregulators, that fits with a deficit face of shame where you kind of know it's not good underneath, but you're able to like do a lot of stuff on top of it. So just to say that again, so the downregulated is, mm-hmm. is, dysregula- is the dysregulated? No, the downregulated, these are both... What I call the deficit face of shame. Oh, they're both deficit. They're okay. both deficit. Right. Yep. Okay. Um, and these folks are not dysregulated in their emotions. They are self-regulated in their emotions, right? They self-regulate. That's what their parents have done. 
and they self-regulate either by going, taking their emotions down to stay in mm. connection with a down mm. parent or by taking their, they self-regulate by taking their emotions up to stay in connection with a, with a parent who's kind of in and out and so, probably on the in times fairly up themselves. So it's very, so it's adapt- not, very adaptable. Exactly. It's very mm. adaptive. That's kind of the point. And, and, and the point from a shame perspective and for a working with this situation, the point is that they don't know very much at all about co-regulation, about being with other people, kind of emotional self to emotional self, back and forth, that that's safe, that that works, that there's a lot of information and connection that can happen there. They just mm-hmm. don't know about that. And so if we get to the sort of Third question, which your readers, your listeners are wondering about, like what, so you, you, you identify with this situation, what are you going to do about that? Um, <laughs> you need to find your way to somebody or some people who can do this co-regulation dance with you. And again, you know, I'm a therapist, you might think, you know, I have a vested interest in recommending therapy, but you know, if it's a problem for you to be able to trust the back and forth of regulation of emotion with another person, it's good to be able to go to a person who can understand that that's a problem for you, right? Mm-hmm. And who can, who can help you talk through what the blocks were for you with a particular parent and how you have experienced that distance from others and not being able to trust and how you hold that deficit sense in yourself and being able to let your emotions come up and be received and worked with in a very different way than what you grew up with. And to, to have that sort of intense experience with another person is kind of the purpose of therapy. But then there's all the good kind of experience. Once you sort of get how to do that, oh, this could change. It's all kinds of good experiences you can have with the other real people in your life, your friends, someone you love and can talk to about these things. So, yeah, this is another version of at the very beginning, no, I said, you, you reminded me what I said at the end of the last uh, radio talk, which was go to the people that you feel comfortable with mm. and risk more there. So this mm-hmm. is to say, yeah, that's an answer, but there's so much inside that answer. Right. So this is, this is kind of the, the second way in which other people, therapist people, but also the other people in our lives can help us. We can help ourselves with them to get to a different place with the, the shame. So, so change is always possible. I think so. I believe that, or I wouldn't do the work that I yeah, do. Right? Yeah. And so by... By, just to summarize, by, by being with sort of a professional co-regulator for a while, yes. you, get mm-hmm. to be, you get to experience yourself differently so that when you go back to family members or you know, just friends, work, work mm-hmm. colleagues, yep. you are different Yes, in that, that, in that relationship. Absolutely. It's, that is the idea. Mm-hmm. It changes something deep inside about what you know, implicitly know about what's possible, right? Mm-hmm. That's so hopeful. Hmm. And so mysterious. <sighs> like, clients who come to therapy have a really hard time at first trusting that this could happen. They think they have to work it out in their minds, right? 
And I have to tell them, no, it's got to be a different experience that you have that you can then begin to recognize and begin to generalize. Yeah, you can't, it's not just a cognitive thing because it's been, right. it's been in, inside of you for so long and it's, what is it? Would you, every, every cell is, <laughs> is yeah. that mm-hmm. So it's not just something that you can talk yourself out of. That's right. Oh, wonderful. So the third face, is that where we want to go now? Sure, yeah. Okay. And I, call, and I call that one the dissociated face of shame. And it's important for therapists to know about because it can be very confusing when someone like this comes into your office um, because they have no idea. Um, they don't, they're, they're, they're dissociated, they don't, they don't present with dysregulated emotions and they have no sense of themselves as being in deficit. Not even that sort of lurking kind of sense of I'm, I'm running, fast, running as fast as I can, but underneath I'm not that great. That's not there. They're dissociated from their shame. Um, you don't feel it. You don't feel deficit. You don't feel your dysregulated emotions. And you do that if you live in this place by by keeping different parts of your experience very separate from each other. So, so as a therapist, if someone comes in and they're having trouble with a relationship, say, or they're having trouble with some psychosomatic or emotional symptoms like depression or anxiety, they won't have a clue why or what's connected to what. Mm-hmm. And they will want you to help them just with the symptom, right? Like make this anxiety or depression better. Or um, this person is a terrible person in my life, you know. Maybe you could help me figure out how to fix them or something like that. Um, The conundrum of Mm -hmm. talking about this in the context of this radio show is that Nobody who lives in this place comfortably is going to be listening, right? It's going to be caring. People who live in this this place comfortably don't even come to therapy. They don't recognize it. They don't see it as a problem. They don't recognize it. That's right. Yeah. So how do do they get out of this where there's parts of them that are cut off and they're not even aware of that? What's what's for that for them? Well… Let me let me use a let me use a uh, a metaphor for describing kind of how how strong this is, and then we can mm-hmm. talk about how you can maybe approach it or be yeah. with it. So okay. I think of it. I think of someone who is he's living uh, in that dissociated face of shame, um, as like living inside of a a large and beautiful and well-defended castle on a hill, okay? (laughs) You are the queen or the king of the castle. It has a moat around it, and there are alligators, probably invisible alligators in it. And you might sometimes go out from your castle to advise your property manager or to go to the bank or to even share some some largesse with the peasants out there. Uh, or or you might host a quite a glittering party inside the castle for a bunch of people who are just like you, right? And the secret, right, that nobody knows, not even you, is that 
in order to have this castle, in order to be here, you had to lock away, out of sight, out of mind, your needy, damaged, terrified, ugly other half, your twin sister, or something like that, right? This is like a fairy tale, a sci-fi little novel. And that twin sister, other half, is still alive, right? Somewhere below, still unconsciously part of you. All this is metaphor, right? I love it. Yes. You're in my territory. (laughs) The point, right. You can build castles in sand trays, can't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) The point is that it feels quite fine, right? You feel powerful. In, In the literature, this is known as a character solution to the problem of shame. It's like, it, it's everything. It's, it's how you walk through the world. The problem is, if there's a problem, is that nobody actually knows you, right? You're in a castle on the hill. And it's all built on a secret that nobody knows, not even you, but that secret can send up kind of some poison into the system, right? It leaks it, out. It, it leaks out. It takes a lot of emotional, psychological energy to keep that secret quiet, to keep these parts of yourself, the part of yourself that thinks really highly of yourself and the part of yourself that's like alligators in the moat that can be really revengeful towards folks, or the part of yourself that that um, has certain ideals and values that in another part of yourself you don't always live up to. Like these, it takes a lot of energy to keep all of these different parts kind of dissociated from each other. It also takes a lot of energy to keep them all dissociated from that really needy, ugly, hurting self at the center. And so that's where I think symptoms of anxiety and depression come through. Um, It's a way of living that can be hard on the people around you. So relational problems emerge, right? Um, but a lot of times they don't. A lot of times people who are able to have a dissociated kind of face of shame, they get through their lives just fine and, you know, maybe a little bit limping a little or, but it works for them. When something isn't working and somebody comes to my office and I begin to feel like, this story isn't adding up. There are different parts to this story. They're not connecting. There's something wrong here. Ostensibly, they want to fix for a symptom or they want to fix for a relationship, but they can't really be inside of their own feelings about it. They are allergic to being vulnerable. When I start to get that feeling, plus the feeling that I must be a bad therapist, it's like the shame that's hidden so far in them gets projected onto me and I start to feel it, then I think, oh dear, here we are. Here's somebody who's got a lot of shame and it is so deeply dissociated, I don't know what we're going to do. Because there's no sense going at that castle, right? That would be a very bad therapeutic thing to do is to kind of attack the castle. Because so, that castle has kept them safe. Exactly. It's, mm-hmm. It is their, it is their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I think of instead is that I try to be gentle and kind and empathic. And in every little way that I can, 
allow a little bit of vulnerability to come through. And I kind of hold in my mind, you know, I, I said it's just a metaphor and I'm making it up, but I hold it, the, the castle metaphor, but I have for a long time held in my mind with people like this, the metaphor of there is a, a, a fairly little and scared and feeling awful about themselves, a humiliated, maybe that's the best word, child in there somewhere. And I'm not going to talk about that child because they can't bear to know about it, but I can know about it. And I can hold that. And sometimes over the long term, when I hold that and the person feels safe with me, the, the, the vulnerability kind of, the ability to be vulnerable, it, it, it expands some. And some of the dissociation between different parts of self kind of diminish. And that person can come to lead a more whole life. Um, and not so much in a in a castle on a hill with moats and alligators and all of that. That's a beautiful analogy. It, it, uh, it, and it, it allows for compassion to come in that somebody has built such a big protection. And so it's sort of directly proportional. The bigger the castle, the more, the more vulnerable, <laughs> the, the more vulnerable that ugly, the twin, ugly, the ugly twin sister is. <laughs> yeah. And and so so as you describe how you work with them, it's it just feels so tender that that you're not going to go for that that ugly twin sister part, and you're not going to go for the protection, but you're going to just gently gently titrate them to trust trust more and more and more so that all of these parts c- can come together is that right so that they can all get to know each other and don't have a to little, be sec- a little bit more i mean i don't hope for a sort of a, a complete integration as in this person will be able to look at the the parts of themselves that are kind of mean and nasty and revengeful entirely but that they would be able to notice every once in a while like oh i don't really want to be like that or that they, um, I mean, some folks play this out in a, their castle on a hill is very um, kind of private because you can live in a kind of a martyr place and be larger than life and it doesn't look like a bright, shiny castle, but it still is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that they would be able to maybe look at the, the self-abnegating perfection kind of holier than other people way that they are and give up some of that um this this character solution can take a lot of different forms and i know that the castle metaphor kind of leads us to think of you know the donald trump's of the world oops Um, oops. (laughs) (laughs) i was hoping this show would be a trump free zone but uh, (laughs) you've just broken that Uh, yeah yeah that was that's okay that that certainly um that did come into my thinking um so this this is about people who've been very wounded they're very they're wounded in childhood is that right where does the origin of this one come from well yes all of these you know the three faces of shame at all it's all coming from childhood wounds. And I wonder often, what's different about someone who can do this dissociated, like completely dissociate their shame? And I have a sense, and this is just a hypothesis, um, a couple of things. First of all, that maybe they had, maybe, 
Okay, I'll do that one second. First of all, that maybe the misattunement, the misrecognition, the the where is the regulating other here? That it was maybe fairly good at the very beginning of their lives, and so they had a fairly sturdy self, and that at some point, some vulnerable point, maybe three, four, five years old, something, something happened that it flipped over into some kind of loss or humiliation, right? So that sturdy self was able to, in a more conscious, though still unconscious, or a more, mm, a less global, messy kind of way, but I am not that, right? And I will, I will rise above it. And then, and then the other part of, like, how, how did this come to be? The other part I think about is that they probably were able to learn it from a close model, like that a parent did some kind of something like this. And the child was able to learn, oh, that's how, without, you know, thinking about it, but just just modeling the, the power of that. That's how I can not have to feel vulnerable. And if I, if I think about that some more, I think, oh, yeah, I can see where a parent who is not good with their own vulnerability could at some point be humiliating to a child who had a fairly good connection and then at a certain point not and got humiliated so that would be in words and behavior would be would be would be shaming them would be dismissing their vulnerability or something like an example yeah could you give an example of that part hmm um i'm thinking of a parent who is very good with little with infants and small toddlers and when kids get oppositional or want to say me who want to matter in particular ways that then that's really not okay that 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 expansive self Mm -hmm. right that something about the child really turns the parent off and and the parent does not respond to that emerging life force in the kid right for example, like I want to be on stand on the picnic table and say, I am the best, right? And a parent who cannot tolerate that, like that's not okay in the world we live in. You know, you don't be conceited or you don't be, right? That's just one possible example or mm, what other kind of life energy, sexual life energy that comes up, right? right? When you're four and when you're five and a parent who really can't tolerate that doesn't know what to do with that and shuts it down and where that goes to in the child in terms of humiliation for something really basic about who they are. Those oh. are just a couple yeah, of no, Thank you. That really helps. That really helps. Okay. So where, where are we going with this? We've got, um, when it, yeah, where, where would you like to go? We've got just a few more minutes left. Yeah. What's a takeaway well, maybe for... The takeaway for listeners is if you've been listening and you kind of identify with different parts of this and you say, well, you know, I've got some uh, dysregulation going and I feel kind of in deficit and most people won't identify really hard with the dissociated face of shame, but maybe um, I think I'd like to say that when I talk about these as categories, it's just for the sake of the categories that most people who struggle with chronic shame can identify with these different aspects 
Um, so, for example, think just just think of a think of a growing up child for for an example. So, this little kid has parents who are loving and responsible, and who don't do emotions very well. Mm-hmm. So. In two different ways, they don't do emotions very well. The mom is kind of shy and downregulated and kind of blunted emotion. And the dad is more available, but he had his own childhood trauma. So sometimes he has trouble regulating himself when he gets upset. He goes into rages a bit. He gets dysregulated. And he gets dysregulated sometimes in response to this child's emotion. He needs to control it. So the person with that early configuration of self with other. And remember, these are good parents who do the best they can with this yes. child. Yeah. This, this child has a pocket of, of dysregulated, of being very afraid of right brain connection, having, help, having felt from time to time that violent dysregulation absorbed from her dad's dysregulation and also experienced when, you know, she got close to him when she was really upset. But it didn't always happen, Right. There was, there was enough right brain, right brain being with from both parents that dysregulation is just a pocket for her. It's not she who also, they are. It's not that's complete. Right. She, that's right. She also learned to self-regulate from each of these parents. Now, there's the mom who's, who's kind of absent and withdrawn and quiet. And, and so she learns uh, that kind of down-regulation, self-regulation from the mom. And... Mm-hmm. In not being that well seen by either parent, there's this sort of deficit feeling of shame in a down-regulated way, a down-regulated kind of um, operation inside of her, in, 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 in herself, in the world with others. Um, and then, so these, are, these were really good parents, not just trying to be good to their kids, but they worked hard in the world, right? And they are pillars of the community and they and 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 so the kid in her need to dissociate somewhat from that sort of shame side of herself looks at her mom who's a school principal or her dad who is uh, a lawyer in town and she thinks, okay, if I be like that, then I'm not gonna have to feel this way and builds mm, some little version or vague version it's not the castle she lives in all the time right but there's that there's that um some capacity to dissociate from shame entirely too and to live in a world that where where she doesn't have to connect much with people it's her Mm -hmm. her own manufactured world so that's kind of a, a sketch of how these three faces of shame are kind of just three moments of how the dysregulating power of of how the dysregulate the power of dysregulation that's what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. yields a sort of a shame effect in different ways in our lives and it's not it's an effect a shadow it's not a it's not a complete uh, eclipse, if you like. That's right. <laughs> you yes. continue the metaphor. That's right. Oh, Pat, this has been fascinating, and I really appreciate you coming on the show today. It's been. Um, I hope the listeners are, are able to pick up on this, and in some for, in some cases, maybe family members who are recognizing 
someone else in the family might have one of these three three uh, uh, faces of shame and maybe begin a gentle conversation, but not right right uh, to it, but maybe just to just to give them some food for thought. Mm-hmm. So. It's, we have to say goodbye, Pat, but thank you so much for, for coming. It's been really wonderful. And um, I want to thank the listeners, too, for, for tuning in to the show. You can always um, pick, pick it up again on uh, iTunes or um, on, the, on the website here at Voice America. And I want to invite the listeners to tune in next week to, to hear more about Shedding Light on a Dark Side. And if you've got any questions or you want to um, talk to Pat, it's Pat, or it's DeYoungPat, DeYoung.Pat at gmail.com. Is that right? It is Pat at uh, I have two email addresses, <laughs> so, okay. and they okay. both go to the same place. But you've right. melded you've melded the two of them. But I can oh. be reached at I can be reached at deyoung.pat at gmail.com. Okay. Yes, All right. And I'm available at mdelittle at gmail.com. And again, thanks to Pat DeYoung for coming on the show today to talk about the three faces of shame. Thank you, Pat. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening this week to Where Words Can't Reach, Shedding Light on Our Dark Side with Dr. Madeline DeLittle. Please join us for another edition of the program next Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week.